Our scripture reading for um, pre-sermon is from Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. 
My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here at Roswell, and it is great to be with you all. Uh, today, we actually have all the lights turned on, which is super helpful. So those of you who fell asleep last week, it's understandable. Just wanted you to know I can see you today. So that's just a real thing. Well, um, this world's a hostile place to live in. All you have to do is turn on the news on any given night or, or scroll over to Reddit and and you find that uh, there's been some other shooting or um, there's a whole another people group that, that's being relocated or relocating themselves out of fear of violence into some other region with only the things on their back. We hear of corruption in, in government and we see unfair treatment or preferential treatment in our, in our companies and in our work. This is not... This is not how it seems like it should be. Things seem that they should be different than they are. Things just aren't right. We seem to feel pain and we, we, see, we see longing in our own hearts. We, we, we see it in other people. We find ourselves looking at the effects of disease and death. We see deception. We see selfishness in other people and ourselves. We see abuse and, and sometimes it's far off and sometimes it's near. Things are just not right. And we long for things to be made right. You long for things to be made right. And Christmas time, man, our desire for that just amplifies. It grows, it swells. We find ourselves thinking of, of some of the really tough things as all the really happy kind of tries to crowd it out. But there's, we think of the people that are going to be alone during the holidays. Maybe it's family members, maybe it's friends. I think of men and women who not only don't have a Christmas tree, they don't have a home to put that Christmas tree in, or, or kids whose parents aren't with them because they're incarcerated, and it, it just doesn't seem like that's how it should be. Things are broken. And now there's, there's humanitarian, uh, humanitarian organizations and nonprofits and churches that, that do everything they can, especially at this time of year, to try and alleviate some of what that brokenness is. And, and we've gotten to participate in those kinds of things in the past, and hopefully you're doing that again. And it, and it does. It, it it takes the edge off. It, it undoes some of the effects of what just isn't or seems broken. It just, with all the efforts, can't seem to make it actually right. We can't make it right. And we long for things to be made right. And I suspect if, if we grabbed a cup of coffee and, and I asked you that question and I started kind of trying to drill down a little bit of what does it look like in your life? How are things not right right now? Right, you'd probably start with some, some small things, you know, some trivial things maybe even. But eventually, sooner or later, you'd find yourself on some relationship, some, some system, some situation that is just too much. That's so not right, you don't know what to do and you're not sure what to do with yourself. And that's the honest assessment that we have as we find ourselves here during this Christmas in between. In between this, this ache, between this longing for peace and, and actually not having peace, this, this longing to, to be known and seen and loved and, and to be truly, truly known and loved. We find ourselves wedged between the, the deep longing for things to be made right and, and things actually being made right. We're in between. And Advent is precisely that. It's, it's the remaining in that in between, an invitation to that ache, to, 
to abide with us as it invites us to yearn and to long for fulfillment, for real fulfillment. What we've seen these past two weeks is there's also really good news for those who, who have come to know and to trust Jesus Christ, and that is that we live in between two advents. Two advents, two comings, two arrivals of Jesus. First, to make things new, to make things right, to change everything, and then, and then finally the second, to transform everything finally. That's where we're wedged. And the invitation is to, to stay there, to remain, to long and to wait for things to be made right, for God to meet us when things are so not right in our lives and in the world. And you know it, right? Maybe you're thinking of something right now that is just not right. And, and you've maybe pleaded or, or prayed or, or gotten help and, and it's still not right. And maybe it'll never be. So what do we do with this longing? The scriptures have plenty of invitations to that. And that's what we kind of push ourselves into during Advent. But the other question is, is why? Why is the world not right? Why, with all the technological advances, with all the, the programs and the, uh, the government intervention, with, with all the enlightenment that we've had, all the learning, all the progress, right? Why are things still not right? Why is the world still so broken? Oh, it seems it's better, but at the same time, it seems worse. New things that we didn't have are now making life worse. This is your peppy Christmas cheery sermon. <laughs> Why is the world not right? Well, if you, if you queried the characters from Matthew chapter 2, which Karen just read to us, if you talk to Mary, and if you talk to Joseph, if you, if you talk to the wise men, and especially if you talk to the parents of the toddlers and the infants from Bethlehem, they would see, say that, you know why the world is not right? Because of Herod. Oh, oh it's Herod. He's why the world is not right. And, and don't get me wrong, Herod was a brutal, brutal leader. He, he, he was so committing to make sure that he never lost his rule that he murdered all kinds of people. So much so that like this event where maybe 20 or 30 or so children were killed in cold blood for no apparent reason doesn't even show up in the, in the history books. It happened that much under his rule. He killed family members. He was a terrible man. And so, maybe that's what it is. It must be that, right? The world is not right because of Herod. Well, because of the Herods. That must be it. The problem, the problem, we all agree, is, is out there. We might say that. And that is true. It's just not the whole truth. And if we're going to make sense of it, we have to look at the whole truth. Why is the world not right? Well, it's because of the Herod that's in you and in me. You see, the problem is not just out there, though it is out there. 
The problem is in here. More importantly, the problem is in here. There was a, um, a commercial uh, in 1996 by a financial company called uh, Dreyfus, and, and this is their slogan. It says, in life, you are either a king or a pawn. It's good to be the king. Now, if that doesn't sound like American perfect capitalism, what else is, right? It's good to be the king. I think someone said that in a movie once. The real truth is that I want to be the king of my own kingdom. The real truth is you want to be the, own, the king or the queen of, of your kingdom. We want to rule our own space, our own kingdoms. And that is the real problem. According to the Bible, that is the reason for why the world is not right. But wait a minute. Wait a minute, Matt. I might say, hold on, like I'm, I'm committed to righteousness and, and justice. I, I, I fight for those things. I, I'm not even sure how religious I am, but I think that those things are really important. But I would say that left to ourselves, according to the scriptures, we actually want righteousness, yes, but we want our righteousness, as we would describe it, what makes, what makes me sense, have a sense of that I'm in right standing, that makes you have a sense that you're in right standing, and that's, that's the righteousness of which I can agree, and of course, we should all agree with me or you. We want justice. We want justice, let me caveat, as it pertains to others. You see, we have this, uh, this live unconscious, unconscious double standard. This is one of my favorite little sayings. I got it, I think, from Spencer Collins. I think I've quoted it before. You can quote it from here. I, if you lie, this is the double standard. If you lie, well, you're a liar. If I lie, well, it's complicated. But right, that's, that's how it plays out. If you lie, well, you're a liar. If I lie, you just, there's extenuating circumstances. It's complicated. I have to, we have to sit down and I'll explain. A few weeks ago, Ivy Tyson um, was, was down at Georgia Tech and she was having a conversation with a med student. And in the conversation, this uh, pre-med student uh, started talking about the meaning of life, you know, the kind of normal conversations you have with med students. And, um, and she said, you know, I must say though, I'm, if, if I happen to know, if I were to know that, that the person laying on my operating table was it like a rapist or a murderer, like I wouldn't operate. And so it's a great statement, right? It's like, wow, okay. She's like, so therefore I'm pretty glad that kind of ignorance is bliss, that I don't get a chart with their crimes or anything. But she said, but I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But then Ivy pressed her a little bit further and said, to say, well, what, what do you think gives someone enough value to be worthy of being saved? Clearly, there must be some kind of value. And, and the longer they talked, the less she could get clarity on what that meant. You see, because she, has a, she had a clear sense that she had a justice and she, she had a righteousness that she understood, and everybody should agree with that. It was her righteousness. It was her justice. And, and frankly, we all have that in us. Our righteousness, our justice... Evil people should get what they deserve, right? But not me. The, the evil that's in me, well, it's not even evil, it's complicated. 
But justice, true justice, is every action getting what it deserves, every person getting what it deserves. That's justice. What we see in Matthew chapter 2 is that there is, there is a Herod in all of us that Jesus was born to dethrone. There's a Herod in each of us that with all that we have, whether we acknowledge it or not, resists being dethroned. We figured out a way to make our life work. You figured out a way to make your life work. And so, I mean, it only partly works. Yeah, no, that's true. It only partly works, but, but I figured out something and I don't tell anybody else. Um, but in reality, I would like my world to work out for my good. That, that's actually what I would like. Now, don't, again, don't tell anybody else, but, and I'm sure you're totally different. But, and now, by the way, if, if the world working out for my good, the way I've orchestrated it, the way I've kind of established it according to my rules in my kingdom, like I, and if it works out for you too, great. That's, that's terrific. Oh, and by the way, if it conforms to the, to the laws and to the, and to the principles of God's justice and God's righteousness, well, then bonus. But at the end of the day, I, I want to make sure my life works out for me left to myself, left to yourself. You want your life to work out for you. But if, but if Jesus is the king, if he was born into the world to be the king, where is the king who was born king of the Jews? That it means that Jesus, the king, has total claim, total claim. It means that there is a real threat to your kingdom in him. And, and candidly, this is an unsettling truth. You, you see it in, in, uh, in Herod. It said that he was, according to the scriptures, troubled. That's Hebrew for freaked out and angry that someone's about to take his kingdom. He was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. There's this king that's coming. Things are about to change. And it's true. Things were about to change. And if but this, rea this reality that there is a king and he wants to dethrone you should unsettle you more than it is right now. And, and the reason it's not, the way you're not seeing the, the, the magnitude of what he actually claims over your life, um, it, it, should, it should be stirring up all that kind of self-determination and independence that we're all ripe with. So let's think a little harder. Let's think a little deeper. Let's, let's enter that maybe with our hearts and souls to realize that I'm going to try and help you. If he's the king, then he holds absolute claim to your money. He holds absolute claim to your, to your home. He, he has total say over your body. He has absolute claim over your children and your health and your future, over all the goals and, and the, 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 the hopes, the plans, the dreams. Yeah, that's his. He has total say over your reputation over your marriage. He has total claim over, over your future and over how safe you are or feel or could be over your family. He, um, he takes total claim of your political affiliations. He claims this Christmas from you. He claims your very life. His rule extends to every nook and cranny of your life. And if you were to say, amen, brother, I would say, think again. You're not thinking it through. Everything 
If he is the king, then he rules over everything. And at Christmas time, it's so great. We, we swaddled clothes, baby. Christmas is so sweet. He's the king, you know. That's who he is. His rule extends to everything, and that means that he gets to tell you to get up in the middle of the night and, and to take off for Egypt. And he gets to tell you, and, and when he tells you this, you, you got to go. It means if he has total claim over your life, that means that, that he can tell you that though you were told to come back and talk to a violent and dangerous king, you don't go because he said, don't go. It means when you find yourself wanting to maybe return to a little bit more of a prominent arena like, or an area like, like Judea instead of finding yourself, you know, in Nowheresville, Nazareth, and he says, go to Nazareth, you go to Nowheresville. You see, the king was born in a manger, this sweet king born in a manger, because he claims to be God himself, claims everything everything. But that's why if you're here, and that's why I said this is a super, super positive, exciting sermon at the beginning here. And, and, and you're like, I just want a sweet story. Like it, there is a really sweet story. It's, it's just the sweet story gets interrupted by the reality that there was an invasion taking place by a king on Christmas. And so the sweet stories are gonna have to be other ones like, you know, elf, Because this king, this, this Jesus, this baby in a manger would find himself in Luke chapter 14 saying this kind of stuff. He would say to the crowds, these large crowds that are following him for now, he would say, if anyone comes to me and, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, just to be clear, Jesus isn't teaching that the functional reality of your life is that you should hate your family, okay? So that's not the application. What he is saying with no uncertain terms is that when, we, when he becomes the sovereign over our everything, over our lives, over all of us, when he takes the throne of our life, that all other allegiances become so inconsequential that they look like hate. That's the gap. Even your own life. Um, Puritan writer Tim Keller, um, <laughs> I just gotta be with Steve on this, you know? Um, He's, he wrote a book about on Christmas. It's been actually really helpful for this series and even this sermon. Um, it's called Hidden Christmas. But he says, as actually references uh, this reality of Jesus' claim, he says, it's a claim of absolute authority, a summons to unconditional loyalty, and it inevitably triggers deep resistance within the human heart. I like he uses the word resistance. Yeah, it's, it's resistance, all right. And by the way, that's, that's in the heart of all men. So I don't care where you are in your spiritual journey here. Like it's resistance, it's pushback. It's, well, hold, hold on a minute. You, you, you don't mean this over here, right? I mean, yes, no, I understand these things, of course, but, but not this over here. No, it's, it's all things. 
Paul actually uses a word different than resistance as he describes us in Romans chapter 8. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the mind that is set on the things that are not of God, is hostile, hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, what does it say? It cannot. You see, the problem's not out there. The problem's in here. The mind focused on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. There, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. New York Times uh, years ago reached out to a bunch of authors and... Um, and one of those was, was a Christian author, G.K. Chesterton. And um, they asked the question, what is wrong with the world today? And he notably replied, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. See, that's a man who's come to realize the reality of what's wrong with the world. And it's not just out there. Frankly, it's not even primarily out there. And frankly, you can't do a whole lot of what, about what's out there. It's actually in here. We're the source of genocidal murder and then subtle, subtle relational slights and of everything in the middle. But we, we, we love to point the fingers. And I get that. Like, I'm a blamer. Something goes wrong, I'm just looking for someone to blame. Ask my family. We want to point the fingers at, at those people for what isn't. They are the problem. They're the source of the problems. It's, it's either, maybe it's the poor, or maybe it's the rich. Maybe it's the, the immigrant or the, the foreigner. You know, it's the religious people. That's the people. No, it's the godless people, the immoral people. That's who's causing all the trouble. It's the right no, it's the left. No, it's the right. No, it's the left. It's the poorly parented or it's the, the spoiled kids. Maybe it's the uneducated. That's, that's who's really doing it. Or maybe it's the, the elite, overeducated, pretentious people. Regardless, we find ourselves going, it's them. And what the Bible and G.K. Chesterton and I'm telling you is no. The problem is in here. In here. The problem is in our own hearts. In my heart resides a Herod who does not want to be ruled. And loved ones, in your heart resides a Herod who does not want to be ruled. And if I don't think that's true of me, I'm not being honest with myself. One of the, um, I had a conversation with someone this week and we were talking about this subject of having, having this manifestation of Herod. Of course, you know, the guy kills innocent children. And so I'm sure we're all going like, yeah, I can take a couple click steps away from that. That's not, I don't think I'm in that category, at least not right now. And so like, so that, that's, I can get some gap between that. And I say, okay, but what, what is the manifestation of, of Herod? Because if you think what happens, it says that he got enraged, right? He was furious that they, that they outwitted him by not coming back to tell him and he got enraged. And then his manifestation of his enragement of the fact that someone else was taking control was, was to kill, to murder. And I was, I was talking to this, this friend of mine. He said, he says, you know what it looks like for me? He says, it manifests itself as anger, no doubt. He says, I find myself 
there's been several times where I've wanted the people in, people in my company to get fired because they're disturbing my peace. You see, as I'm the king, as he's the king of his, of his own kingdom, his longing desire and demand is, is, is peace. He battles anxiety. And so when people shake his peace, they need to die. Well, professionally. But they, they, they need to go. Do you know what I mean? They, they need to not be a problem for my life anymore. It's in all of us. In order to maintain what is mine, I will exercise whatever power I have in whatever means seems necessary. If you're Herod, it meant killing babies. It's a natural outworking of maintaining his autonomy and rule. And we want to do the same thing. And that's why you get angry, by the way, because you're wondering. Why do I get angry? Herod. Herod in you. Not because someone broke God's law or not because someone broke the laws of God's kingdom. No, they broke your laws. They broke my laws. They broke the laws of my kingdom. That's why I'm angry. That's why I get controlling. It's why you get defensive or, or withdrawn. That's why you get anxious or resentful or hateful. Because they broke your law. They broke my law. One of the um, the ways my family, I would always break my laws was when we'd go on road trips. If you're a dad and you, you know, you can say amen here because this is a safe place. But I have this vision when I go on a road trip, especially if it's a long, if we're going to Colorado or going to New York, you know, we're going to be in the car for 8,000 hours. Like I want to get going early. That's what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I can feel it. I can feel it. There are brothers with me and sisters with me here. Okay, so, so what that means is you prepare, right? You prepare the night before and, and then the morning everybody gets up and your goal, your goal is of course what the goal should be and that is to be in the car at a certain time that I have fixed in my mind and heart, that I've declared in the air to the rest of my family and and they just don't seem to want to follow my law. And invariably, we would find ourselves getting in the car somewhere between five, seven, and maybe even 10 minutes after that time, and they had violated the law. And therefore, in just retribution for violating the law, I would be controlling and angry and say things like, I don't care if you didn't go to the bathroom, we're not stopping for two hours. That kind of spiritual leadership every father should give. <laughs> Simultaneously, Becky had a different kind of vision. It was around harmony. It was around us getting in the car and, and beginning this trip with with a word of prayer and anticipation of what this time was going to be. And so the Herod and me and, and, and then the Herod and her, like we, they, they kind of connected, clashed a little bit. See, there was a vision of the kingdom, the vision of my kingdom and then the vision of her kingdom. And they, they, didn't, they didn't suit one another. They didn't work in that moment. And as you probably know, if you ever had the Herod and you meet the Herod and someone else at the same time, it, 
Well, it's that last fight you had. It's that last conflict you had with your boss. That's, that's probably what's going on there. There was a requirement, a demand, something that had to be, and, and it wasn't, and you couldn't make it right. So your kids embarrass you, your, your spouse disappoints you, or your boss dismisses your ideas. Your broker doesn't sell before the stock market drops, and out comes Herod. You know what I'm talking about, right? And this is what Paul says this means, declaring that, the, again, the, the problem is in here, that the trouble is in here, the reason there's, the world is not right, why the world is not what it should be is, is in here. He says in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. And you might say, no one seeks God. Come on. Paul, I object. I know a ton of people who seek God. I mean, I feel like I seek God. And, and, and not just, if I'm a Christian, maybe I just seek God in a general sense of what it might look like. I, I, that can't be true. Tons of people are seeking God in all kinds of avenues and means, right? This can't be true, but the scriptures would say, no, not, not really. That left to ourselves, left to the, the natural, natural state, what Paul calls the flesh, we don't. What we, what we do is we seek, we seek God for his stuff, for the ways in which he can make our life work. We seek him for the, you know, the peace or the, or the comfort or the, or the blessings that he can afford us, or maybe just the forgiveness. We, we, want, his, we want his stuff. We don't actually want him in charge of the kingdom. Well, you can tell that no one's seeking God, and, and even if you think you're seeking God, it, it, it doesn't work is when it doesn't work. When you find yourself having prayed, having asked, having done a certain kind of transactional reality with him, and, and he doesn't come through with you, and suddenly, yeah, I'm sorry, you don't get to be on the throne anymore. Move over. I'm taking over. I, was, I counted on you. I, we, I thought you were going to do, and you didn't. And you know what? I got this. Hand over the scepter. This is... This is going to have to be my way. I'm going to have to take care of, take care of this. Or we seek a God of our own imagination, of our own creation. If we can create a king that looks like us, feels like us, well, then all is well. And, and some of us just don't seek God at all. We, we decided that we're going to be on our own. We're going to figure it out on our own, and we don't, we don't need him. So we reject outright any kind of claims of a king or a God on us. We aren't seeking God. We're not even pretending to try and seek God. I love Herod's mock attempt at trying to pretend like he's seeking God. Hey, listen, wise man, when you find him, will you, will you please come back? I too would love to worship him. Ah, yeah, I, I, I want to worship him. No, I actually want to kill him. I cannot have him ruling over my world, over my life. I think this is some of the point that Jesus was trying to make in Matthew chapter 5. This is where he starts talking about murder. And he says in, in verse 20, in 21, he says, You may have heard that it was said of those of old, I'm sorry, to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, I think we can all agree to that. You can go to pretty much any ancient text and, and murder is frowned upon. But I say, but I say to you, 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Wait, those are the same words. Liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What? Anger is equal to murder? And he's like, yeah. But I think what's more interesting in this is, is the words, but I say. Who gets to say, I say? Do you get to say, but I say? No, the king says, but I say. I know you say this, but I say that it's worse than you think in that passage. Oh yeah, at the root of murder, at the root of, of, of babies dying is actually the same root of the thing that's in you and that anger, that, that you fool, that raka, that, that's, that's what's in there and, and they're the same. I know you say this, but I say, I'm, I'm the king and I say that they're the same. Why is the world not right? Uh, because of Herod, yes. Because of Herod's, yes. But more importantly, because of the Herod in me and in you. Which means that you and I, left to ourselves, can never truly make things right. The problem is inside the walls. The, the virus is inside the system. We need a better king, a better king than you and me. And the amazing thing about Christmas, about Advent, is that we have one. There's a better king than you. There's a better king than me. We have a king that makes things right. Isaiah 9 you should just read this every day during Advent. It's so amazing. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the what? And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Not yours. Good news. The rule, not on your shoulder, on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government. Oh, wait, it's not a static thing. This thing is growing. There's more to it. And of peace. What does his government produce? Steve? Peace. He preached on peace. That's why we're doing this. The increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, which is the promised kingdom of God for his people to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the good news promise. There is a better king. And he was born in Bethlehem, and he was born to disturb and, and to uproot Herod, and he was born to disturb and uproot you. And so how do we respond to this king, this promised king? Well, I believe we, re we respond to him by, by receiving the very thing that Christ accomplished in the first advent. That's, that's the beginning. We must receive the very thing that he accomplished in that first advent, as we stand in between, 
what only he could do to make us right. You see, if the, if the problem is in you, then, then someone has to make you right if there's ever going to be hope for anything around you. And in the first advent, he came to make us right. We talked about being at peace with God last week. He came to make us right, able and capable, because he lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we should have died, and then he, he rose again so that death and sin would perish, conquering them. And then, and then he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. You see, he, he establishes justice and righteous, righteousness in us. That, that, that's what he accomplished. He accomplished it for you because we have a better king than you. You cannot accomplish justice and righteousness in you, which means you'll never be able to accomplish justice and righteousness through you. That's what the ad, first advent did. We find ourselves responding to the king of kings by, by choosing and learning to live as dethroned pawns, which he calls sons and daughters, by the way. You can be pawns or you can be king. It's good to be the king, and I would say it's good to be a son. It's good to be a daughter. You don't want to be the king, but you got a king. You see, the life of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit is upholding justice and righteousness through us. You see, as we choose to be dethroned, and by the way, we must regularly be dethroned. There is no one time off I go. No, no. We have a way every morning, every time of, of climbing back into the seat, of, of reaching over and grabbing the scepter. And so God gives us three antidotes. Three antidotes to retaking the, the throne. We see in verse 11, it says that the wise men, they fell down and worshiped. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Three things, three antidotes to reclaiming the throne. First is worship. Declaring to God, along with all your other dethroned brothers and sisters around you, that he is that lovely, that beautiful, that splendid, that glorious. It's the thing that Joel invited us to do. Hey, think about the words that we're actually singing on that song. Let the truth about what this real God is and what he's really done for you like permeate into your soul. Don't, don't pretend and, and don't create a false God. Deal with the real God who's actually the good king for you. Worship him as he is. And then fall down. Live in, live in submission to the king particularly to his disruptive work in your kingdom. Submit to the ways in which he's going to alter and wants to alter your plans and even your relationships and even your priorities. And like Joseph and Mary, just one of the most amazing things about the entire uh, nativity account is that they get bounced all over the place. Their lives get disturbed off the charts and... And they remain with him. They receive the reality that a king has arrived in their lives and they're going to submit to whatever it means. And so they get up in the night and they go. They say, sure, I'll become pregnant, face disrepute, 
in the whispers for the rest of my life from my fellow villagers. I'll do that. Submit to the disruptions of the kingdom. That's, that's the antidote to retaking the throne. And, and lastly, we offer him gifts. Giving what we have, sharing the things and investing ourselves in, in his kingdom, not our kingdom. And when we do so, what's amazing is that it reminds us that his kingdom is way better than our kingdom. Do you hear what Isaiah said? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Yeah, I want to be a part of that kingdom. Like my thing is just fleeting and disappointing and I'd like to be a part of his kingdom. And I actually get to be a part of it. That's the beautiful thing about Christmas. We're invited to be a part of a kingdom with the king. He's better than you. He's better than you as a king. It's good news. I think that's one of the reasons why um, my favorite passages in Scripture, actually I would say my life verse, though I don't know why I have issues with that expression, is from uh, Psalm 84, verse 10 and 12. It's been about 20 years since this has been at the center, and I think it's because um, I like to be on the throne. I don't want to be dethroned. And, And so Psalm 84 says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. It says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to de- dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord is a sun and shield. He's splendid and he's protecting you. He's got you. You don't, you don't have to try and like scrounge around and be something or protect yourself. He's the sun and he's a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Like he's a giving king. No good thing does he withhold. <laughs> Do you know what this king is like? He doesn't hold back on you. He doesn't, he's not miserly. No good thing does he withhold from him who walks uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Happy, delighted is the one who doesn't try and be king of his own life, but actually just finds himself saying, I'm gonna let you be king. The reason why this is so powerful in me is because it's, It's the antidote to some of the things that I want to pull towards and I want to lean into, and that is my kingdom. And by the way, I can make it look super spiritual. I went to seminary. That's what he wants to do in you. That's what Christmas means for you. You've been dethroned, and because you've been dethroned, you can have peace and you can be loved. You can have hope. And and, and through you, this is the amazing thing, and then through you, Because you've been dethroned, now you can actually participate in making things right. Because it's not about you anymore. You're not trying to accomplish your kingdom's agenda to try and make it look like God's. You can actually do his and see him do amazing things because he is making things new, even now, both now and forevermore. There will be a day when things will all be right and well. But we get to participate in pushing back the effects of the fall. And and some of where you've been placed and some of the relationships God's given you and some of the reason you're in that cubicle or one of the reasons why you serve where you serve is because God's given you an opportunity to push back the effects of the fall. That's the gift God has for you this Christmas. The invitation of Advent of Christmas in between is to respond to our longing for a world being made right by bending our knee. That's what Philippians 2 talks about. That Christ descended all the way to death and said that God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name 
And then here's the line, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, every knee would bow. The invitation of Advent is to respond to that longing with a bended knee, a bended knee of worship, a submission, of service. Now, not later, but, but now, and all the while waiting in this in-between, pushing back all the effects of the fall that God gives us in every place and in every sphere that he's invited us into. And that's what this meal is. This is the meal of the bended knee. This table is a reminder that Jesus became a crucified king. At the penalty of all the wrong and the evil perpetrated by all the Herods and by the Herod in me and the Herods in you was poured out on him. Through the greatest wrong the world has ever known, he made things right in you, in me, by faith. You know what's amazing? Is that he did so by coming in weakness. And we talk about that. He came into a manger, you know, the king of kings and swaddling in a manger, not in a palace. And came as a Jew, not as a Roman. He came and he'd be in Nazareth, not in Jerusalem. He came in weakness. He came in, in lesserness. And yet, <laughs> he came to save. He came in weakness so that he could save by grace. So that when he returns in power, you are not consumed. And I am not consumed. That's what this table reminds us of that he is coming again, and it's good news. And so this meal becomes the weekly invitation to be dethroned, to step off of our throne and to allow him to, to rise to where he belongs and where he wants to be. And frankly, if you know him, it's where you want him to be. He's a good king. He's a good shepherd. He has good things for you. And so that's what we remember every time we take it, including today, in remembrance of him and in an anticipation of the fact that he will, loved ones, make all things right. All things right to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we belong to you. You are the king of kings. And so today, in the midst of all the ways in which we're trying to make our lives work, we, we ask that we would find ourselves submitting to you, seeing you rightly and inviting you to take the right and true and center position in our lives. Lord, by faith, we, we give you total claim over all things, over all that we are, all that we have, all the relationships in our lives. We, we, we give you claim, and we know I know, Lord, we're all going to be tempted to come back and grab again, and so we ask for grace. We ask that this meal would, would feed our souls and invite us towards you, the good king. Thank you that you're a good king. We want to be blessed because of our faith in you, and so, Lord, receive us, and, Lord, we receive you through the body and blood of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. So come and receive the body and blood of Christ for you.